the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. It was January of 1996, and I was elected to the vestry of St. Timothy in downtown Henderson. Uh, several other people were elected with me that year, and one of them was uh, a retired gentleman. When uh, he came into the church, he was um, very new and uh, in, in being elected to the vestry. He hadn't been there very long, and when we would sit in vestry meetings, he would often say, uh, Well, Father, speaking to the priest, this is your church. Uh, what, what do you want to do? It's your church. And uh, the priest would say, you know, very gently, this is not my church, this is the Lord's church, um, and we're here to um, discern his will together. And the gentleman would continue on this and kind of laugh and say, you know what I mean, and dismiss um, the priest's concerns. Until he got a ministry in the church, uh, he was involved with a ministry of uh, gathering together, um, you know, some goods uh, like soaps and shaving creams and this kind of thing, toiletries uh, that would be handed out to um, uh, people in the neighborhood, some of the homeless folks. And uh, this became a real passion for this um, gentleman. And the more that he took ownership of that ministry, the more it became his church. You know, the more this became his ministry and his church so that uh, when other people started to join in this ministry, they were not doing it right. Um, in other words, they were not doing it his way, right? The way that he wanted it done. And so um, it became a kind of an issue of contention uh, because the more it became his church, the more he wanted things done his way. Um, I had had this problem for a lot longer than he did because I grew up in the church and my grandparents had gone to the church. So I long thought that it was my church, right? Um, and so I had um, to repent of the same thing and, and still do when I get confused and think that Jesus the Good Shepherd is mine. We are um, here to invite uh, the lost and the sick. We are here um, to minister to those in need. This is the Lord's church. It is his pasture and it all belongs to him. Uh, this is the difficulty that Jonah had to face. This is the problem um, that he had to deal with. This is why Jonah is one of the few prophets that I feel like I can really relate to. Right? Uh, Jonah is a narrow-minded nationalist who wants to see his enemies get what's coming to them. Right? I can relate to that. He wanted to see these unrighteous people who were living um, these pagan ways to get um, their just desserts. And when he knew that the Lord was sending him so that they could repent, he didn't want to do that. He did not want them to repent and to get mercy. He wanted them to get what was coming to them. And so he goes in the opposite direction. And so you'll remember that in the passages uh, before what we read this morning, Jonah um, tries to go away, and you remember the storm, and he gets thrown overboard, and the whale um, swallows him, and he gets vomited up on the shore, and he eventually makes his way to Nineveh, and he preaches um, the gospel of the Lord, right? He conveys uh, the commandments of God, and the people repent. And this is what makes Jonah so furious, right? He knows that the Lord is uh, forgiving, and that he is compassionate, that he is merciful. And this is exactly the opposite of what Jonah wants to see, right? And so he is angry, um, again, at this, um, this practice of repentance of the Ninevites. 
it's hard for us to understand because um, these were the sworn enemies, right, of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel were the the chosen people of God, right? They were um, there because God had given them the promised land. You remember that Jonah is living in this northern kingdom of Israel, right? So you remember that there is the the unified kingdom over uh, Saul and David and, and Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is a fool who leads them into civil war. And they divide, right, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And here in the 8th century B.C., that uh, northern kingdom of Israel is where Jonah lives. And the enemies of, of Israel, the Assyrians, are only a generation away from finally coming and destroying that northern kingdom of Israel. And they become known as the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans are in place in that place and alive at the time of Jesus, right? And so here they have been in the promised land and living as the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Twice as long as we've been a country in the United States, right? They had this um, long and deep history in this place as the people of God. And now uh, the Lord wants Jonah to go and preach to them that they can repent. They are the sworn enemies. And he just, he cannot stand it. And while he's in his his righteous anger, which is very hard to get out of, right? When we have this experience of being wronged and we have this righteous anger, we like to relish it. We like to hold on to it. And so that's what Jonah's doing. He's holding on to it and he's relishing it. And the Lord shows his compassion for the people and he, and he explains it. And he gives Jonah this little bit of shade that Jonah um, takes for granted, right? Thinking that he deserves this shade. And then the worm comes and destroys it. And the worm is that icon for us. The worm is an icon of the destructive nature of this kind of righteous indignation. Right? When we think that we're just and other people are mistreating us and we want to hold on to that, it consumes us, it eats us from the inside out. It makes us angry and furious that we're not getting what's coming to us and the other people aren't getting what's coming to them. And it destroys. And this is the worm that is eating at Jonah from the inside out and has the threat um, to eat us as well. The threat of the hired laborer confusing himself with the owner of the vineyard. This is what happens in the parable of Jesus. The hired laborers confuse themselves and start to think that they own the vineyard, right? Those that have been working for a long time and that intense sunshine and heat. You know, the the situation that Jesus is speaking of here in this eastern part of the Mediterranean um, has a kind of a weather that's uh, very similar to ours, right? In that um, this, um, you know, time of the harvest of the grape is um, this, uh, you know, central August time where there's, you know, these blue skies and this intense heat and sun and those late rains and clouds of summer have not yet come. And so here they are laboring in this intense heat and sunshine in this very physical demanding work of um, harvesting these grapes. And those that have been there for a long time start to think that the vineyard belongs to them. This is a sickness of the modern man, maybe more for us than for any other people in human history. Uh, the laborer begins to think that he owns uh, the, the land. And, uh, and if, if we are tempted to think that way, we're missing the centrality of what the Lord says here, right? That he is the owner of the vineyard and he has a right to pay and to do whatever he wants to those who are the hired laborers, right? He can negotiate pay however he sees fit. 
and the, the way in which these um, hired laborers can be thought of um, are, are many, right? We can uh, analogize um, these labors, those that come early and those that come late, in many different ways. St. Augustine um, described them as um, the people of God throughout salvation history. So he says those that came very earlier, like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses being in the, the middle of the day, the central um, portion of the day, right? And that these are the people of God who come and begin to work in his commandments in his kingdom. And that finally at the very end of the day are the Gentiles that come and they get all the benefits of the nation of Israel. They get all the benefits of the commandments and all the benefits of knowing the ways of living, right? So the Gentiles come late and they get all these benefits um, and the Jews um, can be jealous of these benefits that they receive. St. John Chrysostom looks at these hours of the laborers coming as the time of a person's life. In his beautiful Easter sermon, his Pascha sermon, St. John Chrysostom says that those that come early are those that are born in the Christian faith, right? Those are the ones that are born knowing the gospel. They hear the scriptures read as children and they come as very young people and some people come to the gospel you know um, in their teens or in the middle of their life and then there are some who are like the thief on the cross right who um, at the moment of their death proclaim um, faith in Christ and they receive this reward and that can be very hard for those who have labored in the church right for those who have um, done their work of prayer and done their work of, of ministry and and then they see somebody who um, is living their life according to whatever pleases them and then very at the end they um, get all these benefits and sometimes we see people who um, after um, living a life of of sin and depravity um, come to the Lord and they receive spiritual gifts that those of us that have lived our life in the church um, you know, have always wanted, and all of a sudden, this person who just commits themselves to the Lord have these spiritual gifts, and they have this vinegar, this vigor, and this energy, and this enthusiasm um, that we seem perhaps to have lost over the many years of service. And it's easy to become jealous or envious, or if we're so confused as to think that our faith is somehow tied to our ethnicity or to our nationalism, and we see a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic church. We can start to get confused about um, seeing those who are coming to the Lord from all over, from every tribe and tongue. And those dangers are real and can keep us from sharing in um, the blessings of the Lord and sharing in the celebration and the joy and the wonder of seeing those who didn't know the Lord to come to him and to repent as the Ninevites did. St. Paul gives us a picture of what this can look like for us. He gives us a picture of what it's supposed to look like for us to be in the church as he's writing to the Philippians. In this letter to the Philippians, we know that St. Paul is in jail at the time that he's writing it. He's in jail in Rome, and he tells us earlier in the letter that all of the imperial guard come to know the gospel by his message. So St. Paul, while in jail, this is his reward for preaching the gospel, to be in prison, is talking about the Lord. He's talking about the joy of Jesus while he's jailed. And the imperial guard come to know him and to understand who he is. And St. Paul says, um, I'm not taking anything for granted, but I continue to work and to strive. And he says, I desire, I hunger to go back to this church in Philippi, right? This earliest of the European churches, so that he can go and he can share um, the joys of the gospel message with them. And he says that when he comes back to them, what he hopes for and what he's yearning for is to see that they are living a life in the manner worthy of the gospel. What does he mean by this? Living a life worthy of the gospel. 
He's not saying that we earn salvation through works, right? He's saying that we are saved by faith for good works, right? We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. And so we're not saved so that we can go up onto the shelf and be an ornament for the Lord, right? To just sit there and to look perfect and wonderful. We're saved so that we can do good things, so that we can do the work of the gospel, so that we can share in this labor in his, in his pasture, in his vineyard. And he says that um, he wants to come and hear of the people of Philippi, that they are standing firm, right? That they are not wavering, uh, which is often the case in the church, right? We waver because of what the world is doing, because of threats or the threats of persecution or because of dangerous things that we see happening and we focus upon the world and we start to become afraid and we start to become discouraged and we forget about the gospel message because we haven't been focused upon that and the love of God. He says instead he wants to see them stand firm in one spirit. Right? And that's not Paul's spirit. It's not their spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Right? They're supposed to be standing firm in one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. So it's not me saying that we're going to stand firm according to what I think or what you think, but we're standing firm in one spirit. And that means that we've got to discern that one spirit. He says that we should be with one mind, striving side by side. So we're shoulder to shoulder with one mind. This is a difficult thing to do. This is a fantastically difficult thing to do for the church, for the body of Christ to get his mind, to seek his mind. And the only way that we can do that is to say, we're not going to do it my way, we're not going to do it your way, we're going to submit to one another, and we're going to submit to the Lord. We're going to do the work of prayer. We're going to do the hard work of reading scripture and waiting upon the Lord. And we're going to do that whether we're teaching Sunday school, or we're working with the young children at at GSS, or we're ushers, or we're um, lectors, or we're working with coffee hour, or we're on the vestry, or any ministry. We're on the altar guild. Any ministry that we have at Jesus the Good Shepherd, we are seeking one spirit and one mind. We are all submitting to Him so that we can do His work, so that we can follow His will, and so that we can be those co-laborers in this pasture of His with faith of the Gospel. So I I have to repent of this every day. Because I get confused all the time and start to think that this is my church. This is the Lord's church. This is His green pasture. He has called us to recognize Him as the shepherd of the sheep and His desire is to seek the lost, to bind up the broken, to heal the sick, to bring back those who are strayed. This is God's work and He's invited us to do it. He's invited us to not only be in this pasture and to receive His mercy and His grace, to receive His blessings, but He's asked us to be co-laborers with Him, to labor in this vineyard, to share that gospel and to proclaim that message and to be of one mind and of one spirit so that this is a green pasture where the Lord can bring all those who are in need. May each of us submit to His will and His spirit that this truly may be a green pasture for those who are sick and in need come and find the love of Christ. That all that we do and say may be due to His love, His charity, His mercy, and His grace. Amen. Amen.